I don't know, man. You 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 caught me at a weird time. I mean, today <laughs> is the day we've got <laughs> COVID nineteen is on the is just rampant, and we've got riots going on all over the country. And if you're gonna ask me that today, I'm gonna say there are no laws anymore. People, <laughs> <laughs> government's just making it up as they go. And they're like, Tonight, the North Korean hackers going even further. This was just the latest in a series of leaks. 143 million Americans, one of the largest cyber attacks in this country's history. Estimated losses from these breaches in excess of $20 billion. Hello and welcome back to Decrypted, a cybersecurity podcast for the everyday person. I'm your friendly neighborhood cyberman, Jacob Besida, and I'm joined by my cyber partner in crime. Dayton Williams. It's great to be here, Jacob. It's good to be here as well. Today we're speaking about a particularly criminal subject, that of the dark net. From founders to fringes, the wide open days of the internet continued to fade. Even the concept of hacking itself has metamorphosized from the early days from something that was seen as positive, like a word akin to tinkering, and now transformed into a word almost synonymous with criminality. This is a time when things were open. There was access for ease of use and use of purpose, and encryption and security were little more than an afterthought, if they were thought of at all. While this period of openness led to hitherto unseen levels of connectedness and information sharing, much like the American Wild West, these bountiful prospects also brought criminality. Without the lawman and the absence of jurisdictions and borders, criminal activity thrived in the playground of the wild, wild web. Slowly but surely, this changed as the federal government clamped down on criminality, pushing criminals and activists alike to the fringes into something called the dark web. For some, a wretched hive of scum and villainy, and for others, a free space from oppressive authoritarian governments. Today, we dive into what the dark web is. But we won't be going on this journey alone. To help ferry us across these treacherous waters, we've enlisted some help from a, well, he didn't want us to say the word expert. My name is Jack Resider, and I make the podcast Darknet Diaries. Before that, I was a network security engineer working for a managed service provider in a Fortune 500 company. We've brought you here really to talk about the dark net, the deep web, the dark web. We've talked to we've talked a lot about it in our podcast and people aren't always sure exactly what that means. Before we really go into sort of what you've covered in the course of your podcast, it'd be good if we had the working definition of, you know, what we're talking about. Is there a difference between dark net, deep web or dark web? What is what does it mean to you ultimately? The the dark web are the websites that you can get to on the dark net. Yeah, that's what, I think that's how it goes. Um, I, I don't get too hung up on semantics, though, right? So what we're talking about is um, there's a Tor browser, and this is a network that is uh, not connected to the Internet. So you have to kind of connect into the Tor network, and then once you're there, then you can access stuff within inside that. So just pretty much everything within Tor is the, the dark web, the deep net, the dark net, or whatever you want to call it, right? So it's and more so, it's more names that are just arbitrarily assigned rather than specific delineations of, of areas. I mean, people do split hairs on it, and there is like a difference, but it's not really something to fuss with too much, if you ask me. That's fair. 
does Darknet itself imply like a criminality to it or not necessarily? Ooh, good question, right? So, um, so w people who use the Darknet are those who want to remain anonymous or somewhat hidden, right? So who are the people who want to remain anonymous or hidden? Oftentimes it is criminals, but it's also dissidents and journalists and people who might be in danger if they are discovered to be you know, doing something like whistleblowers. Uh, so they just don't want stuff to link back to them. So it's, it does get wrapped up with a lot of criminals often, which is kind of unfortunate because it does offer a lot of benefits to countries that are, you know, people who in countries who are very oppressed. And so, uh, yeah, there's, there, there's a lot of different people who use it for different reasons. But before we get into the dark web, we, you need to understand some of the technical underpinnings of it. And to understand that, you're going to need to know something about Tor. We know a little bit about Tor, but let's provide a little bit more background on it. Tor's ex-director is quoted as saying, what's changed most about Tor is the drug markets have taken over. I think 95% of what we see on the Onion sites and other Darknet sites is just criminal activity. It varies in severity from copyright piracy to drug markets to horrendous trafficking of humans and exploitation of women and children alike. And to counter this rash of criminality, federal agencies like the FBI and the NSA have tried to break the anonymity of Tor. And we found that Tor is not a 100% cure-all when it comes to being anonymous. It's not infallible. Since 2006, um, a 49-page research paper titled simply Tor, which was published by the NSA, uh, stated that, there, that the NSA has worked on several methods to allow the NSA to uncloak the anonymous traffic of Tor on a wide scale. What they do is they watch communications as users enter and exit the Tor system, rather than trying to follow them inside, where they are very anonymous. One type of attack, for example, even identifies users by minute differences in the clock times on their computers. And it's also not invulnerable. Mexico's largest telecommunication company, Telmex, has been found to be purposefully blocking network nodes that host Tor. What is it that you want the people who are listening to your show or listening to other educational uh, technology podcasts or you know engaging in that, this kind of media, what is it that you would want them to draw from the narratives that you create? Like, what do you want people to know about the dark net? Yeah, I mean, I think there's kind of three legs to this show is uh, one part um, entertaining. It's a, just a good story. Uh, one part educational and one part a little bit newsworthy because um you know this stuff was in the some of these stories were in the news and you know reporters were covering it so it's like uh let's let's dive into that a little bit more um so yeah i mean i do like pulling back the mask and the curtain of like oh this hacker did this thing well what is that image in your head as soon as i say that you know you, you got somebody in like a basement wearing a dark hoodie or something and i kind of want to say all right, uh, where were you when you did this, right? And well, I was in fifth period class in high school and I was doing it on my tablet. And it's like, well, that paints a totally different picture of what hackers did this. Now it's just some kid that was bored in the back of class. And I like to change people's understanding of what a hacker is and how they do it. Continuing with our analogy earlier, using the Wild West as an analog for uh, the, the dark web, just like how the internet used to be. The Wild West uh, law was something that was kind of taken on upon communities, right? Different cities had had different ways of adjudicating law, right? There some elected sheriffs, some had mob rule, some had posses. Um, the jurisdictions 
were all over the place and there was no consistency when it comes to laws. There were no natural borders. It would just be, this is our online community. This is our online marketplace. If you do something, you can be kicked or banned or what have you. However, times change. And just like how the Wild West changed to uh, eventually the, the growth of the acceptability of U.S. federal and, and state law, so too today has the internet also become more and more beholden to laws of countries. Today's governments provide a sense of standardization, but, you know, at least inside a state itself, but rather than a grand standardization, there's still sort of a balkanized internet with, instead of international recognized rules, sort of nationalized sets of rules. An extreme example, of course, could be China with the Great Firewall and its own policies of not permitting certain content. But even rules guiding, you know, privacy in Europe differ from the United States, which could make a sufficient demarcation between the U.S. Internet and the European Internet. So this is just like one aspect of how these sort of borders have sort of manifested online. One particular struggle of this is itself with cybercrime. And you'll hear in many times with cybercrime cases, especially involving the darknet, that it's very hard to prosecute someone in a different internet jurisdiction. Even though there is cooperation with cybercrime online, national boundaries still very much exist. Certainly these lines are blurred, as we've talked about before, but the fact that they exist it lets states define rules in their sort of internet fiefdoms, regardless of if it's protecting the founding principles of the internet, like the ideas of openness, and even, as we come to see, privacy. If someone in China is found to have stolen the personal identity of, I don't know, um, millions of federal employees by hacking the Office of Management and Budget... Just a hypothetical hi- thing that definitely hi- didn't happen. Hypothetically, hypothetically, if that were to happen... And the United States uh, investigators found out who it was, tracked back, tracked back the exact IP address and where it was and the name of the person who committed it. Ultimately, justice can't really be found by the United States unless China extradites that person to the United States to face trial, right? There's nothing forcing China to try that person in their country who have been found to be a hacker. So this kind of issue persists. And there's, as Jacob said, this growing encroachment of national boundaries and cyberspace boundaries. And part of that, this idea of law bringing, especially with, you know, regards to like the dark debt and, and admirable things like protecting children online can have other implications for undermining things like privacy and security. Things like the Earn It Act, where, which is framed sort of this instance of a, we are either protecting children online or you're protecting people's rights. Uh, making it like a zero-sum game, you know, it's it's a something that has been seen as a threat to encryption, and it's been seen as a threat to expression as companies would be compelled to adopt stricter codes for content hosting, making it basically so if you're a content hoster online, you are responsible for user-generated content on your site. What does that really mean? It's a lot of kind of legalese words. Well, it would mean like if you were on a site like YouTube, if you owned YouTube, you would be responsible for the content of what someone's video was posted on your site. And in reality, YouTube isn't really doing that sort of content moderation. It really can't with just the true sheer terabytes of, of data, the petabytes of data that are going and uploaded at, at, at YouTube constantly. The role of government and the darknet has been a big interplay since its beginning. I mean, the government itself is the one who actually made Tor. One particular person who's keen on telling these stories has been Jack. And so let's get a better sense about, you know, his story, about why he decided to shine a light on the dark web.
So you run Darknet Diaries, which covers a variety of stories from hackers around the internet to specific cases of, of criminal activity on the Darknet to, honestly, quite a wide variety of things from interviewing pen testers that were arrested. So, you know, how did you get into capturing these these narratives of, you know... Yeah, I mean, I was a security engineer for a, for a while, and I had been going to conferences and stuff, and I listened to some of these people talk and give their stories, and I'm just like, this is amazing. Some of them are really good. And at the same time, I was really into podcasts such as This American Life and Radio Lab, and I saw how This American Life was taking, like, just kind of sometimes basic stories, stories that you and I really don't care about, but they make it so that it's intriguing and fascinating. And now we're really into the story, even though like just, you know, an hour ago, I, you would have, you would ask me if I would have been interested in that. And I would have told you no. So uh, like, what were their tricks to make the storytelling of it really good? And then how can I combine that with my love of tech and hacking um, and bring those tech stories that are often very high drama and high stakes because you're talking about, you know, sometimes nation states hacking or, you know, f the government trying to f break its way into tour and find out, you know, what criminals are lurking on there. And so I, I, I kind of combined all that love of tech and, and security into love of podcasts and made it into a fun storytelling. It's very entertaining, if you ask me, uh, kind of way. And that's where I'm at now is do this for how time. do you find the people that you interview i i'm kind of a slow news junkie so i like to wait until all the chips have fallen before getting into a story and so oftentimes this means waiting until a person has like gone to prison and got out of prison and then interviewed them so it's usually at that point they're willing to talk about stuff so sometimes i just have to wait a long time before i can connect to someone um, other times I find people telling their stories on other podcasts or online somewhere. And I'm like, well, you already told it once. Can you come on my show and tell it again? So I'm constantly scouring things. I also have some pretty cool Google alerts set up. So like if uh, a news article showed up that says hacker has been sentenced, uh, that's pretty interesting to me because now we know what crime they did, how they got caught, they, what their sentence was and everything, right? So that kind of wraps up the whole story all in one package. So I do wait for that. And I'm, I'm, I try to be connected into the security scene to just kind of, you know, know who's out there and stuff. I think establishing a narrative is pretty important for this domain of, you know, sort of cybersecurity and the dark web in general, just to sort of educate people. Not everyone's always attached to the technical considerations that go into this field. So having this narrative allows people to really grapple with material that they would otherwise find unapproachable. With some of the specific guests, do you have like any worries about having brought them on your podcast you know do you ever fear retribution for covering certain a topics? little bit i do um like some people are somewhat of a whistleblower some people speak negatively of a certain company and stuff like that um i i worry about it and i try not to do things too unethically like if we're attacking someone or something it's like okay well let me kind of pull back on that a little and and you know not be too negative towards something uh, simply because yeah i don't want um, you know, defamation lawsuit on me or um, some sort of nation state trying to find me out or something like that because I'm, you know, stirring the bees nest or something like that. So I, I do try to be careful. But, um, you know, I think, I think a lot of people who have these hacker stories and stuff, nobody really asks them, like, a lot of questions about it. Like, how did it feel to be on the top of the world when you were doing some of the stuff you were doing. And, um, you know, people just kind of gravitate towards the news headline that says hacker arrested for, you know, breaking into this thing or something. And, and nobody really puts their head into the story and asks them. So it's, it's a bit of, um, 
a cathartic feeling for some of these hackers to to kind of relive the experience again and, and tell their side. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty interesting. You know, there's sort of a mythical or imagined reality of the identity of the hacker themselves. I mean, I, it's interesting to sort of have a humanizing story. I recall one of the particular pieces you covered on OxyMonster uh, that he was caught. Sorry to spoil this particular bit, but he was caught for... Uh, his, for attending a beard competition, effectively, and it's such a bizarre thing to think about. Yeah, I like I like stories like that too, where there's no way I could write that if I was kind of a fiction writer. Like, oh yeah, he's going to go to a beard competition, <laughs> and that's where he gets like <laughs> arrested and stuff. But uh, yeah, it's, the truth is stranger than fiction, and that's what I, I loved most as as well about that kind of storytelling. Do you have like a favorite guest, or I don't know if you play favorites or not, but I, I would love to hear. Um, your your thoughts and feelings about some of the people that you have on on your show. Yeah, the episode. Some of the episodes I did last year, I don't know how I'm ever going to top them. So one of the first ones that comes to mind is the Xbox Underground series, which is a group of uh, of hackers who who brought, they hacked their way into a lot of video game companies and just to play beta release of games. It's a ridiculous story. It's amazing and mind blowing. And they came to one of them came to me with the story, and then I was able to get uh, like three or four people to talk. So it's it's my favorite episodes just just because of how many people are involved in that story that I got to talk as well. Um, usually, I only have like one guest on each episode, but that one I had four. So it, it's a crazy story, and um, it kind of it kind of brings us back to like when we were playing video games when we were younger too, and how we were there for some of those moments. And so it's a little bit of nostalgia of and and when we were when we were playing video games, we were we were trying to cheat and hack and do all these things to try to beat our enemies on the game or whatever. So you know it could have been us on some of those stories, um, but the other one is I had. Um, and this is probably my favorite guest is I had a nation state or someone from the NSA and U.S. Cyber Command uh, actually approached me at DEF CON, one of the hacker conventions I like going to, and said, hey, I'm a huge fan of the show. This is my role. And I am going through the process of getting permission to come on your show. Um, do you want me? To, I mean, would you be interested in, in doing a story that, you know, is government approved? Uh, that the U.S. Cyber Command has done an attack on ISIS, <laughs> like a cyber attack. And I was like, "Holy crap! Of course I want this." So um, I got I got the NSA to come on my show and tell me exactly what they do to stage a cyber attack on another country, like a destructive, uh, degrading attack to take out ISIS, and unbelievable that it, you know. I, mean, I actually, when that was all said and done. I had to send the show to the uh, to the to Na uh, NSA and get them approve uh, that what we said was allowed. And they had a couple comments. They wanted me to redact a couple things, but I did. And then they said, "That's fine. That's approved. Go ahead." And so I was able to uh, like this doesn't happen. The NSA and Cyber Command doesn't go on podcasts to talk about what they've done ever. And this was kind of the first. They actually. So what was lucky about me is that um, NPR actually paved the way by getting all the approvals and stuff but some of the people who were there were fans of my show and thought well if npr can get approval let's let's get jack's darkness diaries to get approved too so they helped me out because they're fans and that's what's kind of fun about the show as well is the is where people listen to the show is just in places i never expected like within the nsa we've kind of hit on this core principle that the darknet exists outside of law and also inside of law 
out, outside and between countries, but also within countries, um, you know, unable to be tracked, but also can maybe be tracked outside of the federal government and also able to be uh, found by the federal government. It's this um, complex environment where predominantly um, criminals are using to have places to exchange goods for services in a way that is harder than, say, doing it in the, the IRL, right? So one of the really cool things about Jack's podcast is that he is looking into the lives of the people who are operating on this fringe of society, a part of society that not only is it uh, unknown to most people who operate in the world, but also even people who are really active online, it's outside of uh, their purview and their understanding as well. So the perspectives and insights that he offers by talking to these people is incredibly insightful and important to understand in the context of the history and the future of the internet. I would agree. I mean, you know, you're getting kind of like a pure ethos of of hackers. I mean, there's a wide variety of guests that he ends up covering, and I would point you to going to listen to some of Darknet Diaries, which you can go to at darknetdiaries.com or to download them from a podcasting app. But, you know, you'll really get to get a sense of like, the sort of the people, the stories of these people behind this. And I think it's definitely worth your time, especially when you consider, as we've kind of pointed out, the dark net can be quite dangerous. And so it's kind of interesting to hear Jack kind of engage with these edgy area of the world. As you listen to Jack, be sure to continue to listen to Decrypted. You can follow us on Twitter, suggest episodes, uh, reach out to us, and we look forward to you in the next episode.